So we talked about, as we began this series a few weeks ago, we're in week number four of a seven-part series, and we talked about this, how everything began. There's two basic worldviews, if we could summarize it into two. I know that is really oversimplification, but two basic worldviews. One says this, that everything around us, ourselves and, and this universe, is here by a, a, an accident, really, by chance. And the other worldview says, no, no, really, we are here by an intelligent, a creative design by God. Two worldviews. And we obviously, as a church who believes that God's word has been provided for us, his scriptures provided for us, we believe that what he has said to us is accurate in his word. And that's what we've been talking about, how good science really does line up with what God tells us from his viewpoint of the account of how everything got started. And we began in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Let's quickly just read through because it's just a few verses to where we are today. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the earth became a desert, a wasteland. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening came, and then morning, the first day. We told you that the first day was a Sunday. And we talked about on that first day how God describes himself, that word for God, Elohim, that word for God is a plural word, but yet it is used everywhere in Genesis and really throughout scriptures, as a singular. So if an English teacher or a Hebrew teacher were grading that, they would have to take off for that. They would, they would give it some red marks. But God is trying to tell us something there. He is plural somehow, but yet one. We also talked on the first week about the property of time. And we talked about carbon dating. We talked about the nature of light. And I hope that you will go back and listen to parts 1 and 2. That's where we covered that. And then this goes on, verse 6. Then God said, let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heaven from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning the second day. And that was a Monday. And last week we talked about that day and we talked about the nature of space. We went super, super deep, for me anyway, into that nature of space that God created. If you missed last week, oh, I hope you will go back and catch up with that. You can listen to it on, on our Facebook Live recording or you can go to SoundCloud and uh, search my name and you'll find our database of teachings and it's in there. And that brings us to the third day, which we're talking about today, and that was a Tuesday, and we picked that up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. Let's look at that. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the waters seas, and God saw that it was good. You see, God's design, God's design is precisely designed for life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this from this perspective, but pretty much everything that is around us in this life, when it gets really, really hot, or as it warms, um, it expands. At this building that we're in on a hot summer day when it's about 100 degrees outside, this building physically gets bigger. I was talking to Rick, who's out at Linux, and he said the facility at Linux on a hot day, he 
it is noticeably larger. <laughs> that just blows my mind. When things get hot, they expand. When things get cold, they shrink. I remember I, when I was uh, in like the sixth grade, uh, a family member had bought me a ring, and I thought it was the coolest thing. It was some kind of Indian ring or something. I loved it. And I, in the sixth grade, I was outside. We were playing outside. Uh, I went to school in Little Rock, cold day. I went in from recess, and the ring was gone. That was my first experience, understanding that when you're cold outside, even your body can, contracts. It gets smaller. My hand shrunk a little bit. That ring just simply fell off. And this building, when it gets cold, this building physically shrinks. That's just the way it works. I mean, it still everything still weighs the same. It just gets physically more dense. When things warm, they expand. When they get cold, they shrink. Except water. Except water. When water gets cold, everything else, <laughs> everything else, when it gets cold, it shrinks. But when water gets cold, it expands. It does the opposite of almost everything else in all of creation. It expands. When it gets cold, it contracts. It gets smaller when it's warmer. Do you know what the result of that is? That property makes ice float. That property alone makes ice float. Do you know why that is important? Why is it important for ice to float? Life would not exist if ice did not float. Because ice floats, Rivers and lakes freeze starting at the top. And then the things very deep are insulated from that cold and they don't freeze. So you know what lives down there? <laughs> right. All the fish, all the life lives down there. You see, if it froze from the bottom up, all the life would die. The, that, I, the reason why we bring that out is because we're talking today about, we launched off with how God gathered all the waters together. He called them the seas. If ice did not float, if God did not make an exception, a chemical, physical property exception for water to freeze and expand so that it will float, then life would not die. There is a principle called the anthropic principle. You've, you, maybe you've never heard of this before. This principle is presented um, by pretty much by evolutionists and, and many, many atheists. They present this principle and simply stated, here's what that principle means. It is the appearance that, it's the appearance that this universe was designed for man. This universe that we find ourselves was designed for you and for me to live and to survive. The anthropic principle, it notes that there are hundreds, hundreds of very delicate ratios that if any one of those are just slightly different, that it would make life on the earth impossible. I'm going to ask the fellas in the back, just a quick note here. If you would give just a little bit of light through here, because if anyone's trying to take notes, they're not going to be able to see. It'll be so dark. So the anthropic principle notes that there are hundreds of delicate ratios that if any one of those is just slightly different, it would make life on this earth, in this universe, on this earth, impossible to live. And some of those ratios are as delicate as this number. One in ten 
to the 55th power. Now, we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment, but I want you to understand this. That is so delicate of a balance that I'm going to assume none of us have the ability to even comprehend a number that small and that large. That is a huge number. Considering 10 billion years, that number is represented by 10 to the 17th power in seconds. Can you imagine 10 billion years of seconds? That number is 10 to the 17th. And some of these ratios that for this anthropic principle, they say for life to, to happen here on earth, it is as delicate as 1 in 10 to the 55th power. That is 40 billion times bigger than the number of seconds in 10 billion years. I, I mean, I can't comprehend that. I, I, I don't know about you. I can't comprehend that. That parameter, 1 to the 55th, it can't change. Even So the, the anthropic principle basically says this. If any one of these parameters of life to make it possible to live on earth, if any one of those randomly change, even in the slightest, or if any one of those parameters did not end up the way that they have ended up, then life on this earth would be impossible. Now remember, the anthropic principle is presented to the world in the form of a principle. It's suggested by evolutionists, some evolutionists, not all ascribe to that, some evolutionists and some atheists. They're the ones who presented that. Now think with me for a moment. Listen to this. The atheist Paul Davies, here's what he said, speaking about the anthropic principle. He said, here's a quote, It seems as though somebody, now this is an atheist, it seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's number to make the universe, he said, the impression of design is overwhelming. Yet Davies does not believe that this was fine-tuned by God. And I want to suggest something to you this morning. We've mentioned it in previous weeks. We're really talking about a matter of faith. Faith either in an improbable accident or faith in an infinite God. That's what we're talking about. All of this being finely tuned. And yeah, that statement is so true. And yes, there are hundreds of things that if they are not finely tuned the way that they are, right now, then life would be impossible. And for me, it's the Bible. It's the Bible that tells me that it has been finely tuned by God for life. That's what my, my Bible tells me. Let, let's go on. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit on fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the third day. I uh, had something interesting happen. I uh, 
my in-laws have a cabin up in the Washita Mountains, and I mean it is remote. There's no so if you can't ever get me on the phone or something, it's because I'm probably up there. There is no signal. There is nothing. So I've got a compass. We're uh, we're, we're out. Our I've got a little compass. I put together, and I wanted to uh, make it nice. As I was putting together these beads, I've got a couple colors here, gray and black, and they spilled on the floor. So I began picking them up and just threading them right onto this uh, for to have a little compass when we go out in the side-by-side up in the mountains so we won't get lost, or at least I'll know where a couple of directions are, even if I am lost. So as I threaded them on there, I was looking at it, and... I began to realize that, interestingly enough, starting with where I ended, actually, right here, it started to form some letters. And I've got, if, if you know Morse code, I've got right here a dit-dit, then a da-dit-dit, which you would know is spells the word in, I-N. And then I've got a dit, dit, dit. No, that's a daw. I've got a daw there followed by four dits. That's a T, an H, and then I've got a single dit, and that's an E. And I began to notice that spelled out in Morse code, I've got in the beginning... And it goes all the way through, through my compass. It spells out in the beginning, in Morse code, without missing a beat. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How amazing is that? I mean, just by coincidence. So this is a total, I counted them up. It's a total of 347 beads with an alphabet of two because I've got black beads and I've got gray beads. So an alphabet of two. And 347 beads, all by chance, just in the right to, to form, in which we also just happen to be talking about. Book of Genesis, where we started in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, just to help you understand, the chance of that happening by chance is 10 to the 104th power. And I know that's just a number for us. That makes no sense. That's a 10 with, that's a 1 with 104 zeros behind it. The reality is we can't even imagine a number that big. A 1 with 104 zeros behind it. In fact, uh, anything greater than 10 to the 45th power that is labeled, and, and, and it was presented by a world-famous mathematician. His name was uh, Emil Borel. And he said, anything greater than 10 to the 45th power is statistically absurd. That's what he said. In fact, he states it this way. Phenomena with a very low probability, and he defines that as at least 1 to the 45th power, those he said, those probabilities do not occur by chance. Let me paraphrase what he was saying. Events with very low probabilities, for instance, this, one to the, I mean, 10 to the 104th power. Events with very low probabilities do not occur by chance. Now, I'm pretty sure that you would not allow me to go next door to our children in 252 and maybe to our uh, first look areas where the kids who are before they go to school. I'm pretty sure you would not allow me to go over there and to tell your children that I, I know it's, it's a long shot, one in uh, 10 to the 104th power, uh, but uh, and it's statistically absurd that that would ever happen by chance, but 
You wouldn't allow me to go tell them that I picked up beads randomly and strung them onto a string and they miraculously came out to, to, to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Morse code. Because you know that's not true. I don't have to convince you that that is not a truth. That really did not happen. You knew that. As soon as I said that, you knew it didn't happen by chance. You knew that. But yet, in a sense, in a sense, we do teach our children that. Every day that we teach them that by chance and by accident, this all happened. Or by chance and by accident, you are here. This universe is here. It is far beyond 10 to the 104th power and the level of it being absurd. These beads right here, they are a string, one string of 347 beads with an alphabet of two, a black bead and a gray bead. For that to happen by chance, and it had to be in that specific order, no other order at all would have worked. For it to be in that specific order, by chance, that is 1 to the 104th power. Let me give you something to compare it with. That's this right here, 1 to the 104th. Hemoglobin in your blood is a string of information that is not 347 units long. It's a string of information that's 574 units long. And it does not have an alphabet of 2. It has an alphabet of 20. And they have to be in a very specific defined order as well. And if that is by chance, then the number is 10 to the 650th power. Compare that number to what we just talked about. 10 to the one, this 10 to the 104th power. Hemoglobin by chance in your blood, for that just to happen by chance, 10 to the 650th power. Common estimates by scientists compare 10 to the 650th. Just what are the odds of that? Scientists, some of them estimate that the total number of atoms in our entire galaxy, the total number of atoms in our entire galaxy can be numbered to about 10 to the 66th power. And for hemoglobin to work, by chance, it would be 10 to the 650th power. Does that help you understand how big that number is? Scientists project that the number of subatomic particles, which means all the things that make up atoms, protons, neutrons, electrons, these amazing things we haven't talked about called quarks, all these subatomic particles, you know what? Scientists estimate that in our galaxy there are only 10 to the 80th power of subatomic particles in our entire galaxy. And for hemoglobin in your body to happen by chance, that makes that number look tiny. By chance, hemoglobin in your body, 10 to the 650th power I would have to say by chance not a chance DNA everything everything that's living has that DNA DNA it's in plants we just talked about how God created the vegetation it's in plants, it's in you, DNA. 
DNA is not a string of 347 like this, 347, no. It's not like hemoglobin that is a string of 574 units, no. DNA, it's a string of 3 billion. With an alphabet not of 2, not of 20 like hemoglobin, it's an alphabet of 200. I can't even calculate the odds of that happening by chance. A string, if this was 10 to the 104th, and there's a string of 347, I, I can't even imagine a string of 3 billion. The odds that your DNA or the DNA inside of a plant could emerge by chance? I'm with Borel on this. Phenomena with very low probabilities do not occur, certainly by chance. There's this thing called the law of thermodynamics. And I just want to mention the second law very quickly. All the laws have an impact on what we're talking about. I just want to mention the second one very quickly. The second law of thermodynamics, uh, it can be summarized by calling it entropy. Let me paraphrase for you what the, law, the second law of thermodynamics says. It basically says this, that on their own, Things move from order to disorder. They don't move from disorder to order. For instance, let me give you an example. If I said I spilled all of the beads on the floor, that is disorder. And if I pick them up and put them on this string, the law of thermodynamics says they are going to remain in disorder. They will not go from disorder on the floor to putting them on this string and suddenly they're in an order. That is a recognized law of physics. And the law of thermodynamics, uh, as stated like we just stated it, applies to all of the fields of science. Not just in thermodynamics, it applies to all the fields of science. This law is recognized, observed by all the fields of science except one, biology. You see, the theory of evolution completely ignores the second law of thermodynamics. It just, it completely ignores it. The theory of evolution doesn't just ignore the law the second law of thermodynamics, it pretends that it doesn't exist. That it applies to everyone else, but it does not apply to the science, the field of biology. Because, the, because evolution clearly states that things move on their own from being unorganized to being organized. Evolution clearly states that things move from non-living to living. They just ignore it. There's another principle out there. It is called the principle of irreducible complexity. This basically says that interdependent parts, things that rely upon each other, at the smallest level, all of those parts have to be in place at the same time in order, in order for that system to function. So let me give you an example of irreducible complexity. This is a rat trap. Have no fear. As far as I know, we have no rat problems here. If we do, we're prepared for one of them. <laughs> this is a rat trap. And the theory of irreducible complexity would mean 
that this item is at its most simple. It has five parts to it, and all five parts have to be in place and functioning all at the same time for this to be a rat trap. Here are the five parts. It has a base of some sort. It has some kind of base. It has to have a spring. Right there is the spring. That spring is attached to a hammer. So it has a base, a spring, a hammer. It has to have a pin. And it has to have a catch for the pin. All five parts are required for this to function. It is in its state at, the, at its irreducible complexity. You take any one of these five parts off of the rat trap and you no longer have a rat trap. You take off the pin, you're not going to catch... There's five parts, you take off one of those parts. Let's say the pin. You're not going to catch four-fifths of the mice or rats that you would have caught. You're going to catch zero. It will not function. All five of these parts have to be in place and functioning at the same time in order for this to function as a system, as a rat trap. That is the theory, the, the principle of irreducible complexity. Think with me in biology for just a moment. Things cannot survive millions of years waiting on the other elements to develop so that it can become like a cell in a living body. Things can't just hang out for millions of years and then and, and wait, living things that are dependent upon those other things in order to live, that is the irreducible complexity. This is true on a micro, a very tiny, a very small level. It's true on the macro level as well. But on the micro level, you can just look at the simple cell. Listen to what the evolutionist uh, Michael Denton said about the simple cell. I want to read it to you. He said this, Although the tiniest bacterial cells are incredibly small, each is, in effect, a variable micro-miniaturized factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up of hundred billion atoms, far more complicated than any machine built by man and absolutely without any parallel in the non-living world. This was an evolutionist who said, the simple cell is not so simple. Think about that one cell that is, in its own case, it is a factory. One tiny cell, a factory. And all of those parts required for it to be a living cell. You take out one of those parts, it doesn't function as just, well, a not so good cell. It doesn't function as a cell. They all have to be there. Think about that simple cell for a moment. Um, one of my mentors uh, that I have been learning so much from, he, he worked for a period of time for the Ford Motor Company. And, and he explains one of their factories. It, it's called the Ford River Rouge plant. He said this facility was unbelievable. Raw materials would come in one end of the plant. They would get in raw limestone. They would get in iron ore, coal. All of these raw materials would go in one end. And inside of that plant, they would manufacture their own steel, their own glass. They would make their own glass. They would create from raw materials their own paint. So in raw materials one end and out the other end would roll out a brand new car. He said that's just a factory.
the living, just one single cell is unequaled by any factory on this earth, even that one. And that one living cell, which is unequaled by that factory that I just told you about, that one cell is capable of replicating its entire structure in a matter of a few hours. That would be like, in just a few hours, taking that entire factory, that Ford plant, and in just a few hours, replicating the entire structure, everything in it, in just a few hours. Now, you'll understand, you would never be able to do that at Producers. You would never, in a few hours, you would never be able to do that at Riceland. You would never be able to do that at Linux, at Delta Plastics, anywhere in this area. You could not replicate that in a few hours. One single cell can do that in a few hours. And it is far more complicated than any of those plants. Wow. There are 10 to the 13th power. That's the number of cells in the human body. And every single one of those cells self-reproduce. And your body is constantly, constantly reproducing cells to the rate of about 50 billion cells a day die in your body. And your body creates another 50 million cells. Billion, I'm sorry, not million. 50 billion cells to reproduce. Uh, to replace them. So about 50 billion times a day, you never told one of those cells, hey, have you thought about it may be time to reproduce, to replicate yourself? You've never had to tell it that, have you? You've never even had to think about it. And possibly, maybe you never even knew it, that it was happening. But let's just say, let's say you could create or you could manufacture life. And let's say you were going to make just one single cell. That's all you were going to make is one single cell, which has about 10 million million atoms in it. And so you're going to have to put that cell together one atom at a time. If you had the knowledge and you had the power, the ability to work really fast, let's say you could do one at you could create one atom for that cell every single minute. There's a new atom, you put it in there and you get it into the cell. It would take you 19 million years to make one cell. But that cell can do it for you in a matter of hours. This is not about religion versus science. And here's why. Because science deals with repeatable observations. Things that you can see and then you can repeat that experience. It deals in the present. The debate of origins, how this universe got here, and how you got here, how the earth got here, earth and life, our origins, that debate is not a debate about science, because that's all in the past, and science cannot prove nor disprove the past. It can only prove right now, today, the present. The past cannot be experimented upon. It cannot be replicated. Science cannot do that. So we're not talking about religion versus science. We are merely talking about the interpretation of facts. And historical assumptions 
and historical faith is what is at work. Here's the truth. This really is about the religion of Christianity and the religion of humanism. Each taking the very same facts and interpreting, and interpreting them in opposite ways. That's what this is really about. Think with me again. We were just talking about how God created the vegetation. And all plant life, it, it has DNA. I can't imagine or comprehend the complexity of DNA. So imagine this scenario with me. When a cell, one single cell in your body that contains DNA, when it divides, or even in a plant, let's go with a plant. When a plant cell that contains DNA divides, it has to get the information from the original cell of the DNA. It must get an exact duplicate, exact duplicate of that DNA into the other cell. And it has to happen perfectly with no error, no flaws. And it has to happen without getting that DNA into a tangled mess. So here's with this little thought experiment. Think with me. The equivalent of DNA, if we were going to kind of increase it to a size that we could deal with. The equivalent of two strands of DNA would be two strands of fishing line that were 125 miles long. And let's just say that you could store those strands, and it, it, would, it could happen. Uh, two strands of DNA, each 125 miles long, and you could store them inside of a basketball. Here's the thought. What you would need to do in order for you to duplicate that DNA, you would need to deal with two strands of DNA that are each 125 miles long and they are stored inside of here. So I have right here, I've got some fishing line. Now, this happens to be um, everywhere. This happens to be almost one mile of fishing line. One mile. So, but what you're going to deal with is 125 miles, two strands, each 125. But this is one mile. It took me uh, and Vanessa roughly 30 minutes to get about a mile's worth of fishing line off of these two containers. Took her 15 minutes, took me about 15. She was a little faster than I was, but it took us each about 15 minutes. So 30 minutes to get one mile's worth off of that spool right here. If you were going to do what your body does with DNA... If you were going to replicate that DNA, what you would have to do, you would have to unzip the basketball, and inside would be enough spools, and it could happen, they would have to be packed much tighter, but it would fit two strands, 125 miles each, inside of a basketball. You would have to take that 125 miles two times off of the spool, take the information 
off of that strand, that 125-mile strand, and then off the other one, you would have to take all the information, duplicate it perfectly, wrap it back up onto the spool, put it back in the basketball, you would have it duplicated over here, you would put all of this back on the spool, back in the basketball, perfectly, without tangling. And you would have to do it at the speed of three times the speed of an airplane propeller. Your body does that many, many, many times a day. You've never told it to do it once. This whole idea of one cell becoming two cells. One cell completely replicating itself into another cell. There is no new creation of cells today. Every single cell on this earth and in your body, in this entire universe, is not being created. That has all already happened. Every single cell has been replicated by another cell. It's this amazing mystery called mitosis. Here's my very last thought today before I put you eternally to sleep. (laughs) The mystery of living things duplicating cells. Day three. It's what we just read in the Scripture. Day three. God created the plants. That initial cell divides, one cell becomes two, two cells become four, four cells become eight. They divide, they divide, they divide, and they become a full plant. Now think with me for just a moment. Each cell divides. But as they divide, they begin to specialize. Some of those divisions, some of those cells become leaves. Some of those cells become stems. Some of those cells become the flower. Some of those cells become the pollen. Some become the stigma. Some become the ovary. Some become the anther. Some become the filament. Each cell has the ability to become one of the many parts. Here's my question. Who decides which cell is going to become what part? Who tells it what to do? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Hey, you sell as you divide. You're going to become part of the stem. I gotcha. Headed that way. You, you're going to become part of the flower. You're going to become part of the pollen. You're going to be a leaf. You over there. I don't like you. You're going to be a root. Who tells it what to do? I have an idea. I have an idea for you. An idea of how that happens. We talked about it last week. But it is just possible. It is just possible that God Himself orchestrates the division of every single cell that has ever divided in this entire world. It is just possible. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The Son, God, Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character and He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. It is just possible that Jesus Himself is actively involved in every single Duplication 
replication of every single cell. It's possible. And this Jesus just so happens, this verse goes on, when He had cleansed us from our sins, that means when He died on the cross and walked out of that grave three days later, He sat down at the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. I just want to tell you this. However God put this all together, which we obviously have more questions than answers, however He did it, it is a matter of faith. Was it an accident or chance, or was it designed and planned by God? You get to decide what you what you choose to believe. For anyone, it is a matter of faith because we were not there. This week, I'm going to ask you to do this. As many days during the week as you can. We're not going to get legalistic. Just as many days as you can this week. Would you read the first 15 verses of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1? As many days as you can this week, would you just simply read the first 15 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and ask God, before you read it, say, God, will you speak to my heart? This God that I, by faith, believe, choose, he, he, he chose to plan this entire universe uniquely so that it would support life has also planned a way for you to connect with Him forever. And He planned you. You may not have planned you. I can tell you, your parents may not have planned you. But God planned you. This world around us is no accident. And you, my friends, you are no accident. Let's talk right now together to that amazing God. Jesus, you radiate God's own glory and you express the very character and nature of God because you are God. And Jesus, You sustain everything by Your mighty power and by Your very command. Jesus, You cleansed us from our sins. You sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And it is from there, Jesus, that You hold this creation together. God, I ask that You bless us this week in direct proportion to how much and how we devour and live by Your Scriptures this week. It is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, that we pray these things. Amen.